0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer powered, listener supported.
1: Community Radio from South Central Indiana.
2: Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Cade Young.
3: And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, June 29, 2020.
2: Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Nicholas Debrita covers the Joseph Smedley story. Debrita talked to Andrea Sterling, an activist and graduate student at Indiana University. And that's coming up later in today's feature
1: report.
3: Also coming up in the next half hour, I talked to Mayor John Hamilton in our Monday segment, A Few Minutes with the Mayor. But first, your local headlines. (music) Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton said a third city employee tested positive for COVID-19 during a COVID-19 press conference on June 26th. He said the employee is a firefighter and is isolating and following procedure guidelines. He said many states are moving backwards in reopening.
1: It's really important to note that some states and localities are actually moving backward to protect against the surge. Uh, As an example, uh, just today in Texas, all bars that get most of their revenue from alcohol are, are under an emergency closure effective at noon from the governor. Florida. This was from a tweet, but reported, uh, Florida just tweeted, they are halting all on-site sale of alcohol at all bars. Madison, Wisconsin is diverting from their state's approach with a 10-person social gathering limit and requiring only seated presence at bars in Madison, Wisconsin. And we've seen, uh, as they saw uh, through contract tracing a big surge in infections from young people socializing in those ways.
3: Hamilton said Indiana's public health system is underfunded and careful evaluations must be made. President of Indiana University Health Brian Shockney said the overall infection rate is down.
4: Just released was the Fairbanks uh, School of Public Health uh, their surveys that they did um, and the research that they did, the one that is uh, really shows that we're doing a good job is that we are now at 0.6 of 1% uh, in our infection rate through their last study, uh, down from 1.7, which is good, um, but as the mayor said, we cannot let our guard down. Uh, we need to be sure that we are doing the things that we need to do, wearing masks, social distancing, not getting in large gatherings. Um, when the uh, release uh, of after the July 4th here of uh, restrictions if it, and, and when it goes into place, we need to still keep in mind our personal protection and personal protection of others.
3: Monroe County Health Administrator Penny Caudell said COVID-19 takes on a wide range of symptoms. She said not every person infected with COVID-19 experiences the same effects. She said phasing in reopening helped avoid resurgence.
5: Many of these states didn't phase in the way Indiana did. They just opened up. And phasing in, I think, has been part of what has been good for Indiana, Uh, whether or not we personally feel like Indiana has kind of taken it slow enough or not, that phasing in is a good thing. So we do anticipate we will still keep our gathering size lower than the state. Uh, We'll still keep that limitation at the bar. Those things we anticipate keeping, and we will look at where we are early next week before we make a final decision on things.
3: Cordell said all businesses can mandate wearing face masks. She said Governor Holcomb's next order will influence their decision to further reopening. Emergency Management Director Allison Moore said Monroe County will hold two additional blood drives on June 30th and July 17th. She said homemade masks are still being collected. So if you are someone at home and uh, could start sewing again, had a nice
6: little break and, and would like to step up again, we are going to start that mask collection again. It will be at the same site that we had previously. Um, Those sites are listed on our website. Again, that website is co.monroe.in.us and then you can find the emergency management page um, through that website and then those addresses will be listed. Codell
3: encouraged long-term care facilities and nursing homes to share their data with the public.
2: WFHB correspondent Aaron Comforty delivers a report from home Comforty reports on the latest COVID-19 developments. We turn to Aaron Comforty
0: for more. Wait times for COVID-19 tests in Monroe County, Indiana, can be up to a week or sometimes even two weeks long, according to the Indiana State Health Department's website. Some Monroe County residents can get COVID-19 tests more quickly if they're healthcare workers or they have testing opportunities through their employers, but many residents rely on the State Health Department's testing site out of the National Guard building on the south side of town. The State Health Department's website states, quote, Hoosiers will not be charged for testing, and insurance is not required. If you have private health insurance, please bring that information with you. Today, I spoke with two nurses on the IU Health virtual COVID-19 screening application. One told me that nurses using the app could not order tests for someone experiencing mild COVID-19 symptoms. The second nurse I spoke with affirmed that and added that a person experiencing mild symptoms should try to set up an appointment with the health department's testing sites. When I told her about the weeks-long wait time for the only testing site in Bloomington, she said, Wow, I didn't know the wait times were so far out. For local residents who are able to travel to Greene County, there is a testing site in Switz City about 25 miles away from Bloomington with a one-day wait time. To get an appointment for a COVID-19 test that is less than a week or two away, residents may have to visit testing sites as far away as Columbus or Indianapolis. According to the Indiana State Health Department's website this morning, Monroe County has had a total of 237 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 28 deaths. Four new cases were reported yesterday. With about a third of Monroe County's population, neighboring Lawrence County has almost the same amount of confirmed cases, standing at 218, with 24 deaths. For the Daily Local News, I'm Aaron Comforti.
3: The Bloomington Historic Preservation Commission approved a partial demolition and addition to a home on East 10th Street during their June 25th meeting. Historic Preservation Program Manager Connor Herderich said the new construction will lift the roof.
2: The new proposal is to raise the entire roof hike up, um, Matt can correct me when I'm done, four feet or five feet, something like that um and uh they're going to be building a uh, essentially room on each side behind the dormer so they're going to raise up the roof height the pitch on the front gable will remain the same um but they want to create some more head space for some upstairs living so they'll be raising the roof height and adding some rooms here to the rear behind the two dormers
3: Commission Member Deb Hutton said most change will happen behind the front of the building. Commissioner Sam DeSoler said the petitioner's decision to center the front door would clean up the front of the home.
2: Monroe County Community School Corporation school board met last week to discuss its current reopening plan. WFHB Assistant News Director Sidney Foreman reports on that school board meeting.
3: The Monroe County School Corporation discussed the reopening and recovery plan during their June 23rd school board meeting. Assistant Superintendent of Curriculum and Instruction, Dr. Marque Winston, said all teachers will receive training for online schooling. She said there are three
7: key ways students will be present in school. The in-person instruction, that really just speaks to that. Students and teachers in classrooms, in schools, where teaching and learning is happening each and every day. We will begin our classroom instruction on August 5th. Our school classes will run five days a week throughout the course of the school year, unless we are receiving guidance from the health department that we need to shut down due to a resurgence. We will adhere to social distancing when possible. We will have smaller class sizes as as appropriate. We will engage in traditional learning practices and grading practices. And our high school students will have the option to take some of their courses in person and some of their courses online.
3: Winston said the other options are an online academy instructed by MCCSE instructors and curriculum or an intermittent online learning. She said students attending the online academy must be able to commit to at least one semester. She said intermittent learning would be in a case of resurgence or case by case.
7: This is only used in the event of a school closure based on guidance from the governor or Monroe County Health Department, but it could also be used for students who will continue learning because of an illness or a sickness that they've experienced. Students will continue learning at home with their classroom teachers. They will not be participating in our online academy. Instruction will include synchronous live meetings in small and large groups as well as independent work.
3: Assistant Superintendent of Human Resources and Operations Dr. Andrea Mobley said any student taking in-person classes must screen for any COVID-19 symptoms each morning. She said students must also wash their hands before leaving for school and upon arrival. Hand-washing breaks will also be scheduled throughout the day. She said each school will also increase sanitation. So we're going to
5: continue to clean and sanitize and disinfect using all the EPA approved and OSHA approved chemicals. MCCSC will have increased presence of custodials during the daytime and and evenings, cleaning all the time, especially cleaning those areas that are the high touch, frequently touched areas. We, We will have additional hand sanitizer available throughout all of the buildings. And we'll have a lot of signage promoting, educating our staff and our students about safety and social distancing.
3: Mobley said classes should use outside classroom settings as often as possible. She strongly encouraged independent travel to and from school. She said MCCSE will still run buses, however students must wear masks, sit in assigned seats, take attendance, and ride with windows open as much as possible. She said buses will attempt staggered pickup and drop-off times. And buses will be cleaned and disinfected
5: between routes and at the end of the day as well. And we're really studying our routes and trying to make the the capacity on the bus as small as possible. In situations where there might be a shorter route that's closer to a school, we might be able to divide that route into two or three routes. So there are fewer students on the bus at a given time if it's not a long route. We're looking at other ways that we might be able to modify the route so that we have fewer students on the bus.
3: Mobley said playgrounds will also be disinfected daily and recess times will stagger. Winston said all students will receive frequent instruction on how to use Canvas, their online learning platform. She said all students will have access to social workers or counselors and will have social, emotional, and equity lessons. Winston said normal school year hours will resume on August 3rd.
2: And now it's time for your feature reports. Up first, WFHB correspondent Nicholas Debrita reports on the reemergence of the death of Black IU student Joseph Smedley. Debrita talked to Andrea Sterling, community leader and graduate student at Indiana University. We turn to WFHB correspondent Nicholas Debrita for more on the story. Black) lives matter.
8: The deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many other Black Americans has left the United States in a moment of self-reflection. Recent protests across cities have sparked international conversations surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement and law enforcement. Even stories that did not capture national media attention have found their way resurfacing on social media. In October of 2015, Joseph Smedley II, a 20-year-old Black student at Indiana University, was found dead in a lake off campus. While his death was ruled a suicide, the events leading up to his death and the response from Bloomington Police Department and IU is shrouded in mystery and suspicion. The story of Joseph Smedley has recently recaptured people's attention on social media amidst the racially divisive climate. The questions surrounding his investigation have still been unanswered years later. I talked with Indiana University graduate student Andrea Sterling to discuss Joseph's story. But what I thought would be a story about one man became an eye-opening discussion about the racial division between the student body at IU and Bloomington. This is WFHB News.
6: At the time, I was an AI for, so I had discussion sections for Survey of Black American Culture, which is kind of like, you know, an intro African American history class. And I had black students in that class and we talked about it, but a lot of my students who weren't black, like in that class, for example, me bringing it up in class is the first time they were hearing anything about it, even though we were right in the midst of it all happening. And so it was just like this huge divide because it felt like some of us are like in the midst of, you know, a tragedy or just confusion, like this huge mystery um, that's also scary, like racially. Because no one really like understands like where he is, he's gone missing. A lot of people don't seem to care. Um, and then you have the majority of the campus seems to just like be living in a bubble and has no idea. Um, and that only got that feeling got intensified after his body was found, because now people are in mourning um both for him but also for you know like a hypothetical self like this idea of well if i went missing if i were found dead would no one care
8: joseph's story was not the only incident on campus that left many like andrea to question the racism that lingered on campus in 2015
6: that whole like year to year and a half on campus was just really racially tense um so we had this story there are a few other things that were happening there was um the Yik Yak, which I don't think is used anymore, but it was it's like um almost like a secret discussion board. So everyone's anonymous. Uh and across campuses, people were going on Yik Yak and threatening that they were going to like, sh- you know, shoot black students, anyone who wasn't white. This is because there was this like, huge football controversy, um, where like black students were saying that they weren't going to play, you know, and it was just like messing up the whole like football and there was just this whole kind of controversy around that and like colleges being these big football schools. And so that was racially loaded and that spread like across the nation. And so that was what was influencing these like threats of, you know, shooting students um, and all of this. So that's all happening in the same year. And IU's response was not great.
8: IU's lack of a response made students question IU's care for its students, especially its students of color.
6: And so it was just these kind of like repeated patterns of if they say anything at all, we're not actually seeing a return on what they're saying. They just say it and nothing happens. So with like Joseph Smedley's case, for example, when he was missing, it was just like, will IU put out a blast? Like, you know, especially at that time, we were getting so many notifications for like gas lines and, you know, even just like small things happening that was, It was almost like a joke. We were like, okay, we get it, news alert system. But then Smedley goes missing and we hear nothing. There's no emails going out. Um, You know, people aren't, like higher up people aren't talking about it when it's clearly, you know, more than 48 hours with enough time that the the campus should have gotten involved. Like this is one of their students. And so we don't actually hear anything about Smedley until um, there was another student, there was a, a... a murder that happened in the East Side apartments. Um, so then finally there's like a joint email that talks about being in mourning um, for that student and finally giving information about Joseph Svenley and I think by then the body had been found. so it wasn't even like you know just people wondered well if they had sent this earlier would that have prevented anything? you know could we have found him alive? What would be the difference? Um, but it just seemed like they had a very lagging response. It
8: would be the fear surrounding Joseph's case that had students like Andrea to question the sense
6: of community. So the, the feeling on campus, I think, was a blend of fear in a certain way, like just going back to that fear of, if something happened to me, like, would anyone care? You know, would anyone talk about it? Um, also, I think in certain ways, illuminated more so that like division that's here, not just on campus, but yes, in the town. Uh, A good amount of students are from Indiana, but also lots of us aren't, Um, or might be from more diverse spaces where, you know, Bloomington sees itself as uh, like a liberal Mecca, but that's so relative to the
8: rest of the state. The suspicion and events on campus leading up to Joseph's death had many Black students unsettled.
6: I think anxiety is a good word. Um, And a lot of it was more so like not slow simmering, but like kind of undercurrent, right? The way that anxiety can just follow you. You're still living and you're still doing the things that you need to do, but now there is this voice that's just kind of getting louder, that's making you feel a little bit more nervous, a little bit more worried. You know, if someone bumps into you, you're gonna double think it even more, um, you know, and just realizing, and more and more people are using this phrase, right? And we used it a lot when we were talking about what happened with Joseph, is this idea of both being like invisible and hyper visible, because there are a lot of ways where like, students of color in general, but I think especially black students on this campus or in this town can feel like we are not really seen as existing here. Um, you know, like we're a fairly small population, it doesn't really seem like there's much real outreach to us. And so in that way, there's invisibility, right? Like people don't seem to care if we go missing and wind up, you know, dead under mysterious circumstances. But then we're also very hyper-visible if we do anything, like take a solidarity picture. Now we're being called monkeys and stupid, you know, and all of these other things. Um, And so, yeah, I think that that is a bit of the feeling. I didn't really notice as much care being paid attention to the case in the larger city outside of the campus. So then I wonder too, like how much do people know with everything that was happening that fall 2015, um, that just really made things even more clear to me, like what's needed and what is missing. I think it is that division that's here um, between the different groups. There there are groups here that are, you know, living and, and trying to do their work and trying to like get through and survive and a lot of times we're either like not seen at all or you know we're painted as like loud or taking up too much space or you know all these other things um and there's just not a lot of attention paid to just trying to connect we talked about this at one of the town halls too with the international students as well is that you know, bringing in people, but then not actually trying to make any room for them. And so then, of course, there's going to be this animosity, you know, and people are going to feel like they're invisible and feel like they don't matter, because a lot of people on campus are treating us like we don't matter. Um, And for the town as well, I mean, my thing would just be to become even more aware and self-reflective. Of how people are interacting with one another, especially those of marginalized groups, um, being more aware of their own kind of preconceived notions and how that's impacting how they navigate, and not feeling like because we are a blue county in a red state that that means we are somehow you know that we're immune to racism or immune to any of these kind of things because we're not. But when we act like we are, that's how attention doesn't get paid to it. That's how things. Kind of fall between the cracks.
8: With the growing attention being brought to Joseph's story, many people are calling on the reopening of Joseph's case. For more information, see Justice for Joseph Facebook group as well as the Justice for Joseph petition on change.org. If you feel you have been a victim of discrimination in the state of Indiana, call the Indiana Civil Rights Commission at 1 800 628 2909.
3: Now it's time for A Few Minutes with the Mayor, our weekly segment where I talk to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton about local issues and current events. Community members posted questions on our social media via Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, posing questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton about current issues. Today on A Few Minutes with the Mayor, John Hamilton answers these questions. Does the city have any plans on how to control the long-term negative effects on the economy due to COVID-19?
1: We've seen a lot of economic damage from the pandemic, obviously, already with thousands of people out of work in our community. And while we've done some immediate things that have been really important, uh, particularly the Rapid Response Fund with a couple million dollars that we've pushed out to uh, support, We are in the middle of really trying to think about how do we recover right uh, from the economic difficulties uh, and do it in a way that will move our community in the right direction. And so working closely with lots of partners to think about whether it's the the mill and the new economy or whether it's the Chamber of Commerce representing hundreds of employers uh, or the nonprofit sector, the arts sector and other social service nonprofits or whether it's the kind of the longer-term economic development strategy, uh, there's a lot of meeting and talking and thinking about that. And um, I'll actually be talking about that in the weeks ahead, a couple weeks as we kind of frame up our budget for next year and the following year and thinking about how do we recover. Because it's it's a huge challenge.
3: Mm-hmm. Do you know on how this will affect Bloomington locals at all, such as an increase in taxes or anything like that?
1: Well, I don't yet. Um, you know, Bloomington locals are, of course, we're we're all affected by less employment right now. Uh, we're all affected by what will the trajectory of the private economy and the large employers be like? Uh, what will I use trajectory be like over the next five years? What will some of the other large employers, health system, cook, cattle, and others like that? What will the retail sector be like? What will the small business growth be like? Um, So all that's really important. Um, We know we're going to be getting some less revenue from certain places, at least in the short run. That's true for gas tax. We've seen a big reduction in gas tax. And then the food and beverage tax has probably been cut in half. But those probably will return. Um, We don't know exactly how. So there are a lot lot of fiscal questions uh, in the air.
3: Um, The next question is, on July 1st, Governor Holcomb's moratorium on utilities is set to end. And how does the city plan to help residents who still may not be able to pay those utilities?
1: It's really tough when people get behind on bills, uh, lose income. Uh, We we in the city are responsible for the water utilities um, and our city of Bloomington utilities, which runs the water system, has a very important and useful program to help people who have trouble with their bills. So the first thing I'd say is if you are having any trouble with paying your bills or forecast that you will have trouble paying your utility bills, just reach out directly, please, to the provider. City of Bloomington Utilities has a phone number. uh, It's on the website, and you can reach out either electronically or, or by phone, and please do so. And they have programs to try to help deal with that. Uh, I think that's true of the non-city utilities too, like electric and gas and cable services and such. But I know for CBU, we have a program where we need you to call us because we won't cut anybody off if they've called and dealt with us and are working on how to resolve it. So just be sure to be in touch.
3: And do you know when CBU will start charging late fees again?
1: as i understand it the state is actually reviewing that right now it's kind of driven by the utility regulatory commission which regulates at the state level it regulates all the local utilities and they often set what what the rules are for decisions like that and i understand they're actually meeting today to consider whether or not the july 1 deadline is going to be changed if it is not changed i think late fees do start in july but they don't actually kick in until september i think but we hope they'll extend that i i hope they will the economy's still really struggling and i think it would be smart to to extend those the uh, the moratorium on late fees and the and the protection against cutoffs um and again we don't want to cut off anybody from clean water it's essential uh, so just please be sure to reach out if you have trouble and contact the CBU and we'll try to try to work with you on some options.
3: Has starting stage four of reopening shown to have any cause for concern such as rising COVID-19 cases or any found hot spots in town of transmission?
1: I would say that the opening up in general has prompted concern, partic- as we pay attention around the country and see some of the super spreader events or, or setbacks that a lot of places have had where people move too quickly and have had to move backwards. Texas, Madison, Wisconsin, California, Florida, Arizona, um, Iowa. We've seen there's lots of examples of that. So the general concern is really high that we not move too fast, that we be careful. Locally, we continue to have a pretty good baseline indicators, percent of people who are tested who have the disease, um, hospitalization rates. We have seen, you know, we've had 28 deaths, uh, the latest number I saw in Monroe County. We've had um, a rise in that and in some case diagnoses lately. Nothing dramatic, but certainly we need to be very, very careful. Uh, And I personally believe that we ought to be more careful as we go over the next couple months with tens of thousands of students coming back. I think the dynamic could change a lot and it could change quickly. So uh, I'm going to be continuing to urge that we be extra careful between now and the fall, uh, that we not take steps that could cause us to slip back. Because, you know, just thinking about the, the economic effects, if we had to have major employers uh, or IU have to either close or move backwards, that would be a very damaging thing. So we should really be sure to take the common sense steps we can in the coming weeks uh, to protect against that backsliding.
3: And with all of this talk of moving back or seeing other places move back and with the students coming in, is there any date or any reconsideration of stage five or when uh, Monroe County sees itself being at that? opportunity to open up to stage five?
1: Well, I don't think we should move to stage five yet. Uh, That's my own view in light of the stakes involved. Um, And we know that if we we have a resurgence, it's a really damaging uh, result, uh, both for health directly and for our economy. And that has impacts on everybody's quality of life. So we know the stakes are high. It seems to me that if there are some relatively simple and relatively low overall cost things we can do to diminish the chance of that bad thing happening, we ought to to look at them really seriously. And a couple of those would include mask wearing and trying to make sure we're having that happen as much as possible, including considering more mandatory mask wearing, which we now know from the science is a really helpful thing. And the second thing is looking at the possible super spreader events or the places where you can get a really bad outcome from one event or a short period of time. And that basically involves where you have lots of people indoors for a long period of time together uh, and trying to think about whether we should really continue to restrict that. That can involve big social gatherings in private homes or fraternities or sororities weddings or events like that. It can also involve uh, bars, frankly, or or establishments where large numbers of people gather for extended period of time and and not physically distance. So my my own view is we ought to restrict those uh, until we're really confident that loosening them up will not cause resurgence. And given what we've seen around the country, those are pretty high risk activities.
3: As we know, the 4th of July parade was canceled. However, does the city have any safe events planned to celebrate the 4th of July either this week or weekend?
1: I am bummed we can't have a 4th of July parade. I love that parade, and uh, I know people enjoy it, and uh, I'm not aware of a particular event that will be held in its stead, but I would encourage you. To go out to the parks and enjoy the outdoors and uh, do things online and do things with your family that you're uh, with regularly and uh, think about our next year together and we hope it'll be we hope it'll be quite different from this past uh, few months that we've had
3: do you have a question for mayor john hamilton comment that question on this coming week's post for a few minutes with the mayor to have your question answered for wfhb i'm sydney foreman
2: been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Aaron Comforti, Cade Young, and Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our features were produced by Nicholas DeBrita and Sydney Foreman.
3: Our engineer today was Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman.
2: And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast as well as other WFHB news programming online at WFHB.org.
3: You too can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at WFHB.org.
2: Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB.